0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by
1: N2K.
2: There's more and more attacks going on from the technology side, from the computer side, but our one true defense is going to be actual humans being able to detect and actually respond to it quickly.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hi, Joe. Hi, Dave. As always, we've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, we speak with Jason E. Street. He's a VP of information security at Sphere NY. He's also one of the authors of the book, Dissecting the Hack, the Forbidden Network. He's a popular speaker. He's someone that if you're in the social engineering world, chances are you know about Jason Street. So we're looking forward to hearing from him. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to lead things off this week. I've got a story. This comes from The Hollywood Reporter. This is written by Stephen Galloway. And the story is titled, Why Are So Many Wannabe Screenwriters Getting Scammed? Now, imagine, Joe, that you're an aspiring screenwriter. Okay. And you've got what you are sure is the next big Hollywood blockbuster. But the problem is, you can't get the right people to read it. Right. So, out in Hollywood, there are these events that are called pitch fests. And at a pitch fest, you can go and basically pitch your project to someone who is saying that they are a studio bigwig.
0: So say I had a TV show. Right. That I had an idea for. Yep. And it's an animated series built around some guy's family and his cats and his dog. (laughs) Okay. I would go out to this place. (laughs) Right. And I would pitch it and show them my sizzle reel and read the treatment to them and all that, right?
1: I suppose you would wait in line to go pitch to each of these Big Hollywood, big time folks who are big wigs. Yep. Sitting there lighting cigars with $100 bills (laughs) and pitch your story. Well, it turns out that while many of these are legitimate, there are also many of them that are just scams. Wow. Really? (laughs) Who'd have thought? Yeah. I
0: mean, it's easy for us to sit here in our studio in Maryland Mm -hmm. and not empathize. Actually, I really do empathize with these people. These are creative people who are really looking to make it big. And they are prime targets for scammers simply because they have this vulnerability that they're looking for an opportunity to pitch their ideas to people who might produce them.
1: Yeah. And they make a, a couple of examples here. There's a, a gentleman named Mani Fonseca, who is an aspiring writer himself. He was at a social event out in Hollywood and a producer came up to him who uh, for someone who was friendly with and said, hey, how'd you like to make a hundred bucks this weekend? And he said, sure, I'd up for that. So uh, this producer friend hired him to be a listener at one of these pitch fests. And what he said was, quoting him here, he said, what I learned, and I know it because I was the one being sent to these things, is you're sitting there with no power. As an assistant at an agency, you're not allowed to sign people. And most of the time you're talking to amateur writers who shouldn't be repped. Right. So what's the point of having this event? The point of having this event is to make money. Okay. Okay. So they're charging these people up to thousands of dollars to get their scripts listened to. In fact, they talked to another gentleman. His name was Nick Iandolo. He was an aspiring writer from Boston. Uh-huh. And he went to one of these pitch fests. He spent more than $1,000 on his ticket and his airfare to L.A. Huh. And he decided that he was going to go back, even though he hadn't gotten any bites on his idea. He says he had a a family holiday adventure and a crime drama. And he says, I'm going to go to one of these and I'm going to be an exhibitor. So not only can you be someone who goes and talks to these people, you can actually buy a booth at some of these things. So nobody in real
0: power shows up to them.
1: Well, they make you think that there are people there. What happens is that well-named organizations, so, you know, an, an executive who runs some sort of organization will say, we'll have representatives from our well-known Hollywood company at this pitch fest. But then the person they send is a low-level employee who doesn't have the authority to actually greenlight anything. Right. So this person went, he bought a booth at one of these events. He, he had a book to sell as well. Uh-huh. And he said, he came away empty-handed. He said, I didn't sell one book. I was like, my God, how is this possible? I spent a total of $6,000. Wow. Yeah. Six grand. Six grand. Now, there are other things like writing competitions. Besides these events, there are people who will look at your script for a fee. There's some folks who they they charge between $45 and $2,000 to give you notes back on your script. Okay. Well, that's almost like an editing service though, right? It is. But this is the tricky thing about this is that... There are certainly plenty of people who are doing this legitimately. Correct. And for all the right reasons, and it's perfectly legitimate for them to get paid for their time. Right. The problem is there is a whole lot of people who are also doing this just to make money who are scammers. Sure. Don't have the ability to move a project forward. Right. And they're just robbing these people blind. To get to the, the, the meat of it, the social engineering part of it, they're taking advantage of these people's innocence. Yep. ...of these people's hopes for fame and fortune. And probably their inexperience, too. Right, exactly. They don't know how Hollywood works. Uh,
0: yeah, I don't know how Hollywood works. No, why would you? Yeah, why would I? Exactly. I do have a degree in mass communication, so... As do I. Yes, you might think that I know how Hollywood works,
1: but... <laughs> and yet here we are, yeah, on the East Coast. On the East both Coast. of us, yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I operate on this principle. If I were to develop something that I thought was worthy of publication or production then there should be no need for me to pay somebody to look at it, Mm -hmm. right? I should have what amounts to a business opportunity that, if it's good enough, should get attention from people who have the power to green light or produce something. Right. Right? So the fact that I have something and people are saying, I'll look at it for 50 bucks or you can come pitch it to us for Mm $1,000, that says to me, I haven't done enough work on this. Right. Right. Uh, That's, that's my thinking on this.
1: Yeah. And I think also the, the, what's problematic is that people will attract would be writers to these events. So they'll have someone come and they'll say for a hundred dollars, we will look at your script. Mm -hmm. And then they look at your script, which it turns out is, is horrible. There's no way that it'll ever be produced, but they say to you, Hey, you know, this, this script has promise Right. for the low, low price of a thousand dollars. We'll have one of our script doctors take a look at it and send you notes. Yeah. Well now, they've set the hook. They've got your money and and they've given you a false sense of hope. Right. And it's just and, it's and, just and not like, right.
0: Like you say, there are people in Hollywood who make their money doing this. Pat Oswalt. Yeah. He's a stand-up comedian, but one of his big lines of business is he comes in and rewrites
1: scripts and makes them funny. Right. Right. Carrie Fisher was well-known for her script doctoring abilities. Right. This is people who have sort of grafted themselves onto what can be a legitimate service. And so the lesson here is before you go to one of these things, do your homework. Find out who's going to be there. Check it out. Make sure that even if it's a well-known agency, that it's people who can make decisions. Right. that is not just going to be low-level people. And do your homework. Make sure that you're not just throwing your money away. Yeah. All right, Joe, that's what I've got this week. What do you have for us? You know me, Dave. I do. I
0: have to go with the darkest story
1: every week. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And this one
0: involves murder.
1: Murder. Right. Oh, my.
0: The story comes from Jennings Brown over at Gizmodo. Uh Uh-huh. And it's a story about Roxanne Reed, who is a 55-year-old woman from Garner, North Carolina. She was caught up in a romance scam. She was catfished. Catfishing is kind of a new phenomenon that has risen out of the social media environment that we live in right now. What someone will do is they will set up a complete social media presence that is one hundred percent fake, but it looks completely real. Right. You know, you'll have a Facebook profile with one hundred and twenty-five friends. You know, that not too many, not too few. You'll have status that you post. You'll have pictures up, but it will be fake. Right. Or a fake profile. So. Roxanne's family became concerned when she was sending money to a scammer and they notified the police and they shared with the police Roxanne's text message exchange with the scammer.
1: So her family and friends, they suspected that this was not good.
0: Right. They knew something was up. Okay. So they involved the police, local law enforcement, and in the messages, Roxanne explained how she would kill her 88-year-old mother, Emma, oh my, with whom she lived, so that Roxanne could get more money to send the scammer. To get the insurance money. I, I would imagine that there was some insurance money. Or the estate or... Or the estate or something. Actually, I don't know if there's life insurance on 88-year-old people mm. that pays out in huge amounts. Yeah. Right? I imagine still. that's still. Probably difficult to acquire. Yeah. Or at least expensive. Mm-hmm. So the police go through the messages and they realize there's enough evidence in the messages, the text message exchange... To charge Roxanne with felony conspiracy to commit murder. You know, they look at this and they see that Emma is in danger, so they take immediate action to ensure Emma's safety.
1: So this woman is so wrapped up in this romance in this catfishing scam yeah. that she's ready to kill her own mother. For money, to For send money, money to this, this this Romeo.
0: This Romeo. This Romeo has a name, right? Court documents show that his name is Scott Humpel. Okay. Who is Scott Humple? You yeah, ask? I do. He's a physical therapist in Texas who had his identity stolen. Right. And his name has been used in other scams. But this is the first time he thinks it's been used in a, a scam that involved murder.
1: So, yeah, I mean, uh,
0: fortunately, Emma's safe, which is good.
1: So now, do the police come knocking on Scott's door and
0: say, hey, what's <laughs> or- I don't think the police did because the, these police are in North Carolina. The story doesn't really tell that. But Scott is in Texas and the information from Scott comes from a local news affiliate that reached out to Scott. And and he said, uh, I feel like I'm in a soap opera. Was oh, his, oh, my goodness. His quote. He's probably been called multiple times by law enforcement because his identity has been used in multiple scams. So he's probably not at all unfamiliar with this. But still, it's got to be terrible to be Scott right now.
1: Well, it's got to be even worse to be Roxanne's mom, Emma.
0: Well, yeah, Roxanne or Roxanne's mom. I mean, mean, talk
1: about a family falling apart and this tragedy that something could get to this point, that someone could be led down a path. Now, we don't know anything about Roxanne. We don't know anything about her family situation, but yeah, just trying to imagine someone being led down this path by scammers and the scammers going along with it, even to the point of right. being so greedy that someone says, Hey, here's an idea of how I can send you some more money. Dave, I have a little I'm voice. Kill somebody.
0: I have a little voice in the back of my head, a little uh-huh. evil voice. And sometimes that little evil voice is like, You could scam people. Right. Or you could do this. I don't think that I could actually bring myself, even if I was scamming people, I don't think that I could bring myself to let somebody kill somebody else. You know, if somebody said, hey, if I kill my mom, you'll get more money. I'd be like, okay, this has gone too far.
1: Yeah, we're done here. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But I have a sense of decency. These scammers don't have that. This guy or girl, whoever it was, was completely willing to let this woman go through with a plan to kill her mother to get money. She probably would not have gotten the money. Right. Right. She probably would have been arrested when she killed her mother. The police say the evidence was that she was going to conduct the act. Mm. So I don't know what Roxanne's background is, but maybe she thinks I've watched all these CSI Miami shows. I I know how to how to beat the forensics
1: experts. Right. I will outsmart the police. Right. Uh, Yeah. Unlikely. She she won't. Mm -mm.
0: It's very difficult to get away with murder.
1: Yeah. Or so I've heard. Right. Well, Joe, with that, let's move on to our catch of the day. All right. All right, Joe. So we had a listener named Rory send in this week's catch of the day. And I have to say, this is a doozy. Okay. Now, for our listeners, Joe and I usually review the things we're going to talk about before we set down to record here. But today... Today, I have saved this one (laughs) because I want everyone to hear Joe's reaction to this one in real time. All right. I am
0: ready for this, Dave.
1: This is a letter from Barclays Financial... Organization. They're an insurance company, right? Yes. This is a letter that someone received in the mail. Okay, so this is a physical phishing attempt. A physical letter sent physical in the letter. mail. It says, important notice, debit card safety recall. Dear costumer, many of our bank costumers have reported that their debit cards have caught fire while they are in wallets and purses, and so as a pre we are issuing an urgent safety recall. This is a matter of the uppermost emergency, as your card could create a pocket fire at any given moment, burning your legs and stomach terribly. I love the term pocket fire. This is is because of a fault in the factory process at our debit card factory in Molten Keynes. Therefore, for your own safety and verification, please complete the bottom of this form and return it with your debit card to the safety manager at the following address. And then it has a thing. Where there's also a place to put your PIN number. Really? And at the bottom it says, important. The PIN number is for verification porpoises only <laughs> and will be destroyed immediately upon a space rival.
0: Uh, I just imagine that they have a bunch of porpoises
1: yeah. that <laughs> right. receive these things and verify <laughs> Yeah. Your private details will not be compromised at any time. <laughs> well, that's a relief. <laughs>
0: So, I'm so glad they told me my private details will not be compromised. Right, right.
1: So imagine a room full of porpoises <laughs> tossing around exploding debit cards, <laughs> <Right. But laughs> putting out the fire with the, the mist coming out of their blowholes. <laughs> right. This one blew up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh,
0: God. It's so good. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Rory this is the best
1: <laughs> Rory wins yes. so far this is this is the, the winner so uh I mean it's got a, it's got something for everyone misspellings the implausibility of, of course, first of all, there's nothing in a debit card that could spontaneously burst into flames. Right. It's it's uh, <laughs> the chip. But, it, but the thing is, most consumers don't know that. I guess. The, the
0: chip is an electronic circuit, but it's not powered until you plug it in. Yeah. Right? And that's where the problem with all these like the Samsung phones that were blowing up a while ago, their problem came from the battery. It was the battery that was bad and there's no battery in these chips
1: right uh this one is pretty straightforward but uh, as as rory pointed out the person who sent this to us he could imagine it perhaps an elderly person doesn't understand the technology right this is a safety issue i don't, I want, I don't want to be set on fire by my or have my purse explode i will bet that they
0: got returned atm cards with pins yeah i'll bet this
1: worked i'll bet it did Oh, that's a good one, though. It is awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you, Rory. And for everyone else listening, we would love to hear about your catch of the days. Uh, Send them in to us. The contact information is on the CyberWire website, so check that out. As you can tell, we really enjoy reading these. Yes, we do. And that is our catch of the day. (laughs) All right, Joe, when we come back, we're going to hear my interview with Jason E. Street. He's the VP of Information Security at Sphere NY. And we are back, Joe. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jason E. Street. As I said, he's the VP of Information Security at Sphere NY. But he is perhaps best known as being a very popular speaker, a keynote speaker at places like DEF CON and Derby CON. You can find a lot of his stuff on YouTube as well. He is quite the social engineering expert, and so it was a real treat to talk to him. Here's my conversation with Jason E. Street.
2: What I do is a security awareness engagement. So I try to physically compromise a location to steal data or actual equipment that could be damaging to the company. And then I use that information and that exercise to better educate the employees of the dangers of letting people like me inside their facilities.
1: So what does a typical engagement look like and and do they set boundaries for you?
2: I've been lucky. A lot of mine have not set a lot of scope. It's like a, a scope of work is very important in this case because you're dealing with real life consequences with people and locations. I've done ones where the scope was so much where they said that I, I couldn't lie to the cleaning crew because they weren't employee of the actual company. And so they literally said it's like I couldn't lie to the person, but if they could let me in, they'd let me in. But I couldn't lie to them to let me in. And I got in. I told them the complete truth in a dishonest way and still got in. (laughs) And uh, there's others that are like, no, just whatever. Just YOLO. Go in and, and see what you can do. Which are always fun.
1: What are some things that are off limits?
2: Targeting executives. It's like following them to their house and trying to go into their wireless network and try to go through their garbage. I've only been able to do that once. Most people don't usually want that kind of adversarial relationship, but attackers will do stuff like that. In the U.S., there are still bank managers that are being followed home, kidnapped held overnight so they could open up the bank uh, so it can be robbed in the morning. Hmm. These aren't like outlandish scenarios. These are things that people will do because there's millions of dollars on the line. And what would you say your success rate is? I would say on every engagement, when it comes to actual compromising, uh, at least one of the facilities and also educating the people there is 100%. Hmm.
1: And what are some of the most common mistakes you see people using when they're trying to protect themselves against these sorts of things?
2: Self-doubt. The biggest threat to any enterprise is human nature wanting to think that something bad's not really happening and self-doubt and intimidation of not wanting to be the one to cause a problem or to interrupt someone or to ask someone what they're doing or or appearing to be rude, trying to find out why someone's where they're not supposed to be. Uh, Most people that see me or catch me in a server room or in a hallway or someplace I'm not supposed to be, They give me this look like, this doesn't seem right. He doesn't look like he's supposed to be here. And then they just go about their business instead of questioning it, instead of going say, maybe something bad's going on. Maybe he's not supposed to be here. Now, what about the
1: proliferation of technology? I'm thinking about, you know, there are video cameras everywhere now, and, and now we're seeing more and more cases of things like facial recognition being brought online. Would those
2: sorts of things slow you down? I don't think so, because there's so much way that you can alter your body. I mean, there, there's things that you're just putting a pebble in your shoe and changing the way that you, you do your gait. It's like uh, the way you walk. I'll grow goatees sometimes and uh, change the way my hair looks. To, I've dyed my hair once for a job because they actually used the, my videos as a training material. So I put on a goatee. I had a different kind of glasses. I dyed my hair black. It's like with blue highlights a little bit because I like to come with warning labels. I like to be something off. I still managed to get in and, and get through everything. So yeah, there, there can be a problem with cameras. You can still change your identity. It's like, it's very easy to change your gender from a video footage point of view. Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of different things that you can do to uh, full cameras to make it look like you're somebody else. Do
1: you have recommendations for, what's a non-confrontational way to make sure that you're checking people out?
2: One of the key things, and, and it's surprising how many companies don't have this, one of the key things that they can do to better protect their companies is create a helpline, create an extension number on their phones that someone answers from information security or even the help desk that can then route it to security that they can call. And make sure every employee knows it. It's like make sure that there's a email address that all it's always answered timely by information security. So if someone sees something suspicious on an email or they see something suspicious online or they possibly get compromised, they can contact information security. If they see someone in their facility, if they see someone that doesn't look right and they don't feel comfortable questioning it, it's like in questioning them, then they can go and actually go and do the uh thing by calling security. I got caught once. It was a great thing where it's like I tailgated a woman into the building, into the security facility. It's like I went right behind her and I went into a couple offices, compromised them. I started talking to another lady down the hallway and I could have gone out the hallway and and escaped. But then I realized what was going on. She knew she'd done something wrong and she was talking to someone about it and and they were going to call security. And I was like, this is a great teachable moment. It's like, so instead of just escaping and, and getting the victory, I kept going down the hallway, even said hello to him as I walked by. It's like, and then security showed up, and that was a better outcome and a better product for the, the client because they got to actually see what happens when something goes wrong. It's like uh, when something goes right, they got to see an employee actually make good on their mistake and actually uh, make the place more secure. So we got to empower employees to that not only are they supposed to report these kind of things, they're encouraged to report these kind of issues. And uh, one of the ways that I say to, to do the encouragement part of it is gamify it. It's like any person that reports a suspicious activity or reports someone tailgating or reports a suspicious email, they get entered into a drawing every quarter. And so there's like a prize, you know, like a gift card or a Starbucks card or or whatever. Every quarter, every person that enters, they can enter as many times as they want, but the price stays the same. So it's good on the budget and executives will like that. But it gets a lot more participation of the employees because it gamifies the whole security awareness thing.
1: And I guess it sort of flips it where rather than people being afraid of being embarrassed for making a false report, you're incentivizing them to reach out even if nothing comes of it.
2: Exactly. And, and that's the key point. It's like, yeah, there are going to be a small pool of people that are going to do a lot of false positives where it's like, oh, I thought this was suspicious. and It was just a spam email. Uh, and you know what? That's OK, because at least they're paying attention. It's like uh, so even when they're gamifying, they're trying to gamify the gamification. It's like, they're still being aware and they're still talking to other people and their other coworkers about how they're entering the drawing and making the other workers want to do that more as well. So that's a key thing. That is something um, that you want to encourage. It's like not the false reporting, but reporting in general. It's just letting them know that even if they make a mistake and click on a link that they shouldn't have, that it's still okay for them to report it to information security. and And so they can deal with it immediately instead of like three months down the line when they realize they've been compromised.
1: When you wrap up an engagement with someone and you sit down and discuss with them how things went, are there patterns? Are there typically things where people have eye-opening moments and they go, wow, this is not what we expected?
2: Yes. Mostly every single engagement. What I do is I really hate writing reports. So uh, I'm not great on writing reports, but I'm really good at giving presentations. So what I usually do is I will actually wrap up with the executives. It's like I give them a presentation of what happened with pictures and sometimes video of me actually doing the actual engagement, times where it's like, I've actually had to like, I've done so much where it's like, the executives are demanding a a meeting to explain exactly how I was able to get into where I was able to get into. So there's always a wrap up. We do it from an educational standpoint. We, We do it from, a way that, that shows them, okay, this is what was happened, but this is what we can make it better. And every time I finish an engagement, even on site, when I'm actually doing the, uh, the break-in, I will leave successfully. Once I've left successfully the location, I wait for two minutes. And then I go back in, usually with an employee from the company, and I explain to every person that I compromise, I explain to them what I did and what they could do better. So I give them that one-on-one educational moment right then and there, right when it's fresh, right when they realize something went wrong.
1: So interesting
0: guy, huh? Yes, I got a couple takeaways, or actually four of them. Okay. First, 100% of the time he gets somewhere. That's because there is no such thing as a perfectly secure anything. It doesn't matter what it is, it's not perfectly secure. There's a way to penetrate it. Second, your own self doubt is Jason's biggest tool. That was key. When you see something, say something. And I also like his encouraged reporting that it's okay. And he brings up a great idea for a way to handle this. Because a lot of times, people don't want to deal confrontationally with other people. Right. So if you see something that's up, just go ahead and call your security organization and say, hey, there's something going on up here. Come up here and take a look at it. And your company should have a way... To handle that, you yeah. know, in small businesses that don't operate secure environments, there should be something analogous to that.
1: If you've got people who work for you who are by nature non-confrontational, have a mechanism for them to be able to pass that along to the person who are paid to be confrontational. Exactly. Right? Exactly
0: right? my point. The fourth point that I want to bring up here is that management needs to start looking at InfoSec as a loss prevention tool you don't run a retail store without some kind of loss prevention organization if you think a retail store is something that people walk into all the time now every business is something that people go into online Mm. every business has a front door so to speak that people can just walk in through or shouldn't be able to walk in through, but sometimes can walk in
1: through. If only in a virtual way. Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm. So if you look at it as loss prevention, then you've changed the paradigm or the way people think about it. You're preventing the huge detriment that's going to happen when the lawsuits start rolling in because you've lost a bunch of data. So a lesson for pen testers here. In the beginning of the interview, he talks about how he couldn't lie to a cleaning crew. So he tells the cleaning crew the complete truth in a dishonest way. Mm I think that if you can convince yourself that you're telling someone the truth, that the chances that you will display physiological signs of lying are reduced. Overall, I thought that interview was absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah, he's an interesting guy, and, and uh, I, I highly recommend it. He's got a, a bunch of his presentations that are on YouTube, so uh, check it out. Again, our thanks to Jason E. Street for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening, and thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about what they're up to at isi.jhu.edu. And our Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.